invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. It's not uncommon this time of year to hear various platitudes being thrown around. Um, There are phrases even that are taken from the Bible, they're taken from the Christmas story, phrases like peace on earth and goodwill toward men. And they are then divorced from the context of the scripture, they're divorced from Christ. And then they still get used though and thrown around and maybe slightly different or significantly different meanings attached to those phrases. And often when they get used it strikes me as being just kind of a wishful thinking. Wouldn't that be nice? Uh, there's really no action plan, no one has a clue how to bring about any sort of peace upon this earth. Uh, it's just, again, kind of wouldn't that be nice, wishful thinking. And then it just becomes something that's just said this time of year. That's the meaning of Christmas, peace, something like that. And it just becomes something that's part of a Hallmark card or movie, maybe a, a cheesy tagline even. And and it's not really something that serious people in touch with the issues of the day really give much thought to. It doesn't really seem to have much relevance or be of much use to anyone. It's sort of nice thinking, nice feeling, perhaps, but little more than that. And it's certainly not for serious people looking at a very seriously messed up world. Of course, the coming of God's Son into the world was and is anything but irrelevant for those who are concerned about the plight of the world, concerned about the very serious issues that we would see. Nor is this Christmas story intended just to stir up vague notions and wishful desires for peace, but nothing more. Rather, the eternal Son of God being found in the form of man, lying in a manger, was in fact an essential part of God's plan and purpose to save human beings from sin and from the effects of our sin, death. It's incredibly relevant at all times, in all cultures, all times of year. It is not vague in its intention, nor is the peace that it brings merely the platitude of wishful idealists. If any man or any woman was ever to escape judgment, the incarnation, that is the eternal Son of God, coming in the form of man, taking human flesh to himself, was absolutely and is, remains absolutely essential. And so I want to take some time and, and give consideration to the necessity of the incarnation this afternoon. And I want to do that by looking at a few verses from Hebrews chapter 2. We're going to look mainly at verses 14 to 18, but I want to back up a little bit and read verse, starting in verse 10. It's always hard to know where to start, uh, how much context to get, to get uh, but we'll at least back up a little ways um, to chapter 2 and verse 10. So let's begin reading Hebrews 2.10. <clears throat> For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified 
all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I am the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted." So I want to consider three reasons why the incarnation of the Son was absolutely necessary. Three reasons that arise from these verses we have read. And the first is that the incarnation of the Son of God was absolutely necessary in order for him to properly identify with and represent those he came to save. It's absolutely necessary in order for him to properly identify with and represent those he came to save. So there, there are those who have, and some theologians who, who have suggested that God could have just chosen to save man from sin in any old way he decided to do. There's any number of possible ways God could have decided to save sinners, but he just chose out of a number of options this particular one, to send his son uh, to earth as a man. However, I don't think that's what Scripture really teaches to us or presents to us or that that's a good way of reading this. And even in our own text now in in Hebrews 2, just here, we have a certain necessity presented to us here that it had to be this way. That if the Son of God was truly and actually to rescue man, then he must be man. He must identify fully with human beings by taking humanity to himself by taking on flesh. And so in verses 10 to 13, which we read, we're not going to spend much time there, but in those verses, the author of Hebrews here has established that God the Father has given to his son a people. They're called children here, children that he has given to the son. And so both the eternal son of God and these individuals that God has given to him, whom he calls here in verse 13, children, they both have God the Father as their father. And so there, it says here that, uh, uh, behold, I am the children God has given me. Those are the words of Christ in verse 13. So both share God as their father. And because they both share God as their father, the Son of God, Christ, we're told, is not ashamed to call these children his brothers. So God has given a people to the Son for him to save and to represent. And then in verse 14, it builds on this, saying, it says, since therefore the children, it's talking about 
the individuals that God has given to Christ to redeem, since the children share in flesh and blood, that is to say, since they are human beings, they have flesh and blood, they are humans, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Christ, likewise partook of the same things. That is, he likewise partook of flesh and blood. He became, he came as true man. He took humanity to himself. So he became like the ones that he came to save. He, he so identifies with them that he has taken on our very humanity. And this is more than simply a nice gesture or a nice thing that he has done. We often will do that. Somebody gives us a nice gift and we say, well, you shouldn't have. You know, you really didn't have to. We say, well, no, I didn't, but I wanted to anyways. And there's a lot more than just a a nice gesture here from Christ. There's a necessity here. So if you look down at verse 16, it says, For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. So because Christ has come for the offspring of Abraham, and what that means here, it's saying he came for human beings. It wasn't to angels that he came to help and to save and to rescue, but rather it's to the offspring of Abraham. And so therefore, he had to become like the offspring of Abraham. He had to become Man, he's not just an angelic figure of some sort. He didn't come for angels. He came for the offspring of Abraham. And because of this, therefore, it says, he had to be made like his brothers. It was necessary. If he was to properly help and to save, to rescue human beings, then he had to be made like us. And notice it says, like us in every respect. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect in verse 17. The point that's making is that it was a true humanity that Christ took to himself. It's a true humanity that Jesus possesses. Um, Some have, over the course of church history, said that Jesus really only appeared to be a human being. He isn't really a true human. He only appeared to be. Or they'll argue that he was maybe some sort of hybrid creature. He's sort of partly God and he's partly man. He's some sort of third, third thing. But he's not truly man. But this is saying the exact opposite. That he was made like us in every respect. He's not partially man. He's not sort of kind of man. He's truly in every respect human being. Now in chapter 4 in verse 15... The author of Hebrews is going to clarify one thing about being truly man. He's going to say he is like us in every respect, yet without sin. Just in case we get the wrong idea about his being like us. He is like us in every way, true human, but he was without sin. And some people think, well, how, how can that be? To be human is to err. Or every human being is a sinner. Therefore, if he's truly a human being, if he's truly to identify with us, he'd have to be like us and able to err and be a sinner himself. But the answer to that, I, I don't think, is terribly difficult. If we back up to the beginning of Genesis, when God creates Adam and Eve, were they truly human beings? Of course, the answer is yes. Adam was a true man. He was truly a human being, though he was created without any sin in him. And so it is not 
exactly true, though on this side of the fall, all the rest of us human beings are indeed sinful. It is not necessary to be sinful in order to be truly a human being. So Jesus is like us in every respect. He has come like us, but without sin. And of course, this is also a reason why the virgin birth is such an important doctrine and really always has been in the Christian church. He is truly human, Jesus is, as Mary's child. He is born of a woman, but he is without sin. He was conceived not by Joseph, not according to the ordinary course of things, but placed miraculously in the womb by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so his human nature is not corrupted. This is how it is that he can be uh, like us in every respect, yet without sin. So our church's confession of faith rightly states that the Son of God took to himself a human nature with all the essential properties and common infirmities of it, yet without sin. And so the mystery of the incarnation of God the Son taking flesh to himself is that the eternal Son of God, who was himself without beginning, who shares in the full divine essence with the Father and the Spirit, yet took to himself a human nature such that the person of the Son of God, the Eternal Son, possesses now two natures, one divine nature and his human nature. And they remain in this person of the Son distinct. They do not blend together such that he is some unique hybrid creation of some kind. They remain distinct. And what we are seeing here in Hebrews chapter 2 is not simply the fact of the incarnation that the Son has come to be like his brothers, but we are also reading of its necessity, its absolute necessity. For Jesus to come and take up the cause of humanity, sons of Abraham, fallen sons of Adam and Eve, Jesus had to take on a human nature to function in this role, to function as our Redeemer. And we'll see more about why exactly that is in just a moment. But obviously this already is telling us that this thing that we celebrate, Christ's nativity, his birth, is not simply sort of a nice feel-good story, take it or leave it. It's not just to bring us a vague sentiment and kind of a warmth of feeling uh, this time of year in the cold of winter. It is an absolutely essential aspect of Christ's redeeming work. He had to come as man. He had to so identify with those God gave to him so as to take on human flesh. And praise God, of course, this has occurred. God in mercy has sent his son. And his son has joyfully come. And he is unashamed, we read, to call us brothers because we share the same Father. His Father has sent him. His Father has called the people to himself and given them to his Son. And the Son comes and unashamedly calls us brothers and takes up our cause. So the incarnation of the Son is absolutely necessary in order for him to come and identify with us appropriately and rescue us. 
And let's continue. Secondly, the incarnation of the Son is absolutely necessary in order to rescue humans from death. In verses 14 and 15, there are two reasons given here for why Christ partook of flesh and blood. And they both have to do with rescuing human, human beings from death. So look at verse 14 again. It says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. That, and that's expressing purpose, in order that through death he might first destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and second, that he might deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So there are two purposes given here. Destroying the one who has the power of death, the devil, and then delivering those who through fear of death are subject to lifelong slavery. And so he becomes man in order, Jesus does, to accomplish these things. But we might wonder, especially with regard to the first purpose there, to destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Uh, we, we know God being God could just destroy Satan in an instant. Uh, so why, you know, that doesn't seem to require the incarnation in order for him to just wipe Satan off the map if that's what he desired to do. And so the, the key here, I think, is that we are also told here the means by which Christ accomplishes these purposes that he came to accomplish. So let's, let's look again here just at verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same thing. So Christ likewise became flesh and blood in order that through death he might accomplish these two purposes. The means by which he will accomplish these two purposes are, is given to us here, and it's namely through his death. It is through his death that he would conquer Satan and the power of death and release the captives from the slavery to death. And this absolutely does require the incarnation. Uh, God cannot die. God being eternal, God being impassable cannot die. And so the eternal Son of God would have to take to himself a human nature so that in and through that human nature, he might die on the cross so that he might gain victory for us through that death. This absolutely does necessitate the incarnation. Now let's just consider these two outcomes or purposes of this incarnation for just a moment. Uh, the first here is that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. Now the, this is originally written in the Greek and that Greek word that is rendered here is to destroy the one who has the power of death. That word can mean to just abolish something or wipe someone out entirely. But it very commonly means to render something powerless, to remove its power. And that's likely how it ought to be understood here, because that's exactly what the death of Christ does 
with regard to the devil and with his power over death. It renders his grip upon all of those for whom Christ died null and void. We know Satan's final defeat, when he'll be thrown into the lake of fire, that is a future reality that is sure, that is going to happen. There's no question about that. But his grip, even now, upon Christ's death, his grip is loosened upon all those who are in Christ by faith, who are covered by what Christ has done. The devil's power of death, as it says here, This power over death comes from the fact that he is the one who enticed Adam and Eve to sin. And that, of course, brought the curse of death upon creation. And all of Adam and Eve's offspring are born then, now, because of that event, with sinful natures. We live lives of sin. We violate God's law in our actions, in our thoughts, in our attitudes. And the just penalty for sin, according to God, is death. The wages of sin is death. And of course, Satan understands this. He knows that. And so if he can get all of humanity to be sinners, then God has to punish them because God is holy. And the wages of violating God's law, the wages of sin, is indeed death. And so his Power is tied to this conundrum, if you will. God is holy, man is sinner. God must punish sinners because he is holy and he is a good and just judge. And Satan is also called the accuser of man. He accuses man. God, you cannot just welcome him into heaven. He's violated your law. And you, being holy, cannot possibly just look the other way. As a just judge cannot. And so it is in this sense that he possesses the power of death. Here's what one commentator writes. The devil wielded death-inflicting power first by luring humans to defy God's prohibition. It's Adam and Eve. And then by accusing them before God's tribunal. But the death of Jesus, the innocent, in the place of his guilty brothers, has deprived the devil of the capital charges he had lodged against them. In Christ's death, the debt that we owe for our sins, death, has been paid in full. And Satan's charges now fall to the ground because of this. He has no claim on all who are in Christ Jesus and trusting in him. He could say, well, you can't forgive him because he has sinned. You can't let it go. You are holy. He is a sinner. You must punish him for his sins. Here are a list of all of his crimes. And it is Christ who steps in and he says, no, the penalty has been paid for by my death. Debt paid in full. He is forgiven. It is true, of course, That Christians, we do still face the physical reality of our physical death. But the bitterness of that is eased because it is the means by which the believer goes to be with the Lord. Because we are spared from the eternal judgment following our physical death, what the scriptures calls the second death. And further... 
The salvation that Christ brings to all who believe in him includes future glory in which our dead bodies will be raised in glory and united to our perfected souls to dwell eternally with God and all of his children. And so death does not have the final say. 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 10 It says Christ is the one who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So he has come in order, first of all, to destroy, to render powerless the one who holds the power of death, namely the devil. Secondly, the second purpose of the incarnation stated here is that through death he might deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So that first purpose that's given stresses the defeat of the devil. And the second stresses the deliverance of the captives. On account of sin, man is enslaved to death. It is the inescapable reality that everyone faces. It is not simply, as some will say, a natural part of life. That's not so. And we know that's not so. It is an intrusion. It is an enemy. The Bible speaks of it as. And it looms ominously over everybody. It renders, it threatens to render so much of our lives, so much of our striving, so much of what we do as just pure vanity and meaninglessness. Psalm 90, verse 10, the years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. And then what? The Bible doesn't avoid this difficulty and trouble. There's the book of Ecclesiastes revolves around this seeming meaningless to everything that we do. A generation goes, a generation comes. Things just seem to continue as they always have. And we're forgotten. Many people do indeed have troubled consciences and are indeed afraid of death. They're maybe not entirely sure of what's next, but they know in their heart, they know in their conscience they've done evil. And what if they do have to give an account for these things? I think even over the last few years, for all of the bold talk that science supposedly frees us from, you know, the, the crutch that religion is for those afraid of death, we've seen what that has done for us and in general for society. The threat of death comes in the form of a virus and people lose it. They lose their minds. They come unglued. They want to just, they demand the overthrow of the principles that have made this place a relatively great place to live. Throw it all away to somebody. Somebody try to help me, spare me from this possibility that I might die. So for all the talk that goes on, there is much fear of death and a slavery to that. How do we shake it? How can we shake it? It's going to happen. It's going to come.
It's not wrong for a man severed from Christ to fear death. Man suppresses the truth about God's existence in unrighteousness. But there is a day of reckoning that comes in which man will stand before God. And then what of the sinner? What of the one who has violated the law of the eternal divine judge? The Bible teaches it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. Every man and woman will stand before the judgment seat of our Lord. And moreover, God sees and knows all. Everyone is naked and exposed before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. How will one stand? God will not be bribed. He will not be bought off. And it is not simply a matter of having a relative morality where I just, as long as I just beat out my neighbors a little bit, then I'm at least ahead of somebody else. That's not how it works. When Jesus was coming into the world, Zechariah, if you remember the father of John the Baptist, he prophesied saying, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. For those who fear death and live in light of, its, in light of it and live in its slavery, the answer is to look to the incarnate Son of God who ransoms sinners from the penalty of death and the judgment that is to come by dying himself in the place of sinners and absorbing the wrath of God on our behalf. Believe in him. It is his death that delivers, that frees, that releases from the fear of death, knowing that for all who do believe, though we die, yet shall we live, as Jesus comforted Martha after Lazarus' death, and we will live eternally with our God. Again, many Christmas carols, they evoke emotions in us, these Christmas hymns that we hear this time of year. They might bring on those happy feelings, maybe, I guess for some, perhaps not. But many of those carols, many of those hymns, they do speak of this theme of death and the releasing from death and the fear of it. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadows put to flight. Christ has done this. He has come to accomplish this. He has done this, coming as man and dying to bring about this end. If you're believing in Christ Jesus, if he is your trust, then you need not fear death. Apostle Paul said to be away from the body is to be with the Lord. In other words, if I die, it will be a benefit to me and my spirit will be with the Lord. And there is, of course, the resurrection to come when our Lord Jesus returns. And if you have not trusted Christ, this is what Christ deals with. Our ultimate problem, the ultimate enemy, death, and the reason for it, namely your sins. And confidence in the face of death can be yours. Thirdly, the incarnation of the Son was absolutely necessary in order for him to serve as a high priest. Verses 
The author of Hebrews has described Christ's death in militaristic terms and in royal terms. He has come to destroy the power of Satan, to rescue the captives. And then it turns here to this priestly language. In verse 17, it says, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that, again, another purpose of why he had to be made like his brothers, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. The incarnation is necessary in order for Christ to come and to function as our high priest. And we might think, who cares about a priest? Priests, that sounds really old. No one, who talks about priests anymore? Uh, that sounds outdated. I, that, who cares that he needs to come as a priest? Well, let, here's what Hebrews 5 tells us about a priest. It says, every high priest, and it's talking about the Old Testament priests, every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. A priest is a mediator who goes between man and God, the offender, man, and the offended, God, whose law has been violated. And the priests acted in the Old Testament on behalf of the people of Israel in service to God. They offered gifts and sacrifices for sins, Hebrews 5.1 tells us. And they did that representing the people. The reality is mankind does need a representative. We do need a go-between. We need a priest. We need a mediator precisely because we have sinned against God and God is holy and he is the judge. We need someone in the middle to fix all of this and to make it right and to make us presentable to him. We cannot simply barge into the holy of holies and tell God how it's going to be. Sure, apparently I've sinned, but here's, we'll make a deal and here's how it's going to go. Some people talk that way even when they say, well, what if you do and you will go meet God? Well, then here's what I'll tell him. But that's just not how it works. When even an angel of the Lord appears to a man in Scripture, what happens? They're on their face before even this angel in terror. How much more so when we face God Almighty? We need someone to help us out, to make us presentable, to offer gifts and sacrifices on our behalf because of our sins. This whole idea of Christ as a priest is a major theme throughout this book of Hebrews. We're just dropping into the middle here a little bit. It goes on through several chapters to to, to bear this out, to, to say how Christ's priesthood It was foreshadowed in the Old Testament, but it is so much better and greater because, among other things, his priestly work actually saves eternally sinners. It actually cleanses us. It actually does make us presentable before God. In order for the eternal son to do his work of being a merciful and faithful high priest, he had to come and take on flesh. And again, in verse 17, the work of his priesthood brings us back to his death. Verse 17 again, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect 
so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Well, couldn't he have just done that without becoming a man? Well, to become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make, again, purpose, in order to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He came to be a high priest in order to make propitiation for the sins of his people. For him to serve as a merciful and faithful high priest, he had to deal with our sins. This word propitiation, it's a good word. It's a good word that we should know. Some translations don't use it. They don't like it. They don't use it. They'll use atonement instead. But propitiation is a good translation of this word. And it's a word that should be kept. It should be embraced. It should be understood. You should love this word. And it means to satisfy God's wrath. To appease his holy wrath. That's what Christ has done. He's made propitiation. He has appeased God's wrath because of our sins. One of the reasons, obviously, people don't maybe like this word too much is that it means that God is indeed full of hot wrath in need of appeasing. It implies that we are worthy of God's wrath. It's offensive because we don't like to think that God would be angry at me or at man's sin. We would much prefer a very vague kind of sense of God being happy and loving. We don't want to think too deeply about what that would require and entail. Just we would rather him have just kind of a general sense of feeling good toward me. As long as he just doesn't look too closely. Additionally, there are pagan concepts of propitiation. In which pagan gods need their arbitrary and capricious wrath appeased. And man is often trying to figure out what, is, what do I do to, to make him happy and to make him stop this. And I'll try this and that's not working. I'll cut myself and really show this God that I'm, I'm serious here by hurting myself. And of course, this is not what kind of wrath the Holy Creator God possesses. It is a settled and it is a holy wrath. It arises not because God is angry in himself. It's not the same kind of attribute he possesses as his love even. It arises out of the fact that God is holy and we are sinners. And God must therefore punish violators of his law if there is to be justice. It is not arbitrary. It is not capricious. Moreover, we need not guess about how it is that God's wrath is satisfied, how it is appeased. And furthermore, God himself has taken the initiative to appease his own just wrath toward us. He has sent his son to come to serve as man's priest And one of his functions as our high priest is to make propitiation for our sins. Mankind are violators of God's holy law. And this makes us guilty before God. It makes us warranting of his wrath. God says he has revealed himself to us and he has in the things that have been made. 
Man likes to look around and say, oh, not enough evidence. But creation itself is proclaiming his handiwork. And yet man has the audacity, audacity to be dismissive when it's right there in front of our faces. That's how sinful man is. And the wages of our sin is death. But for the children that God has given to the Son, the Son makes propitiation for our sins. He drinks down the cup of God's wrath such that there is nothing left. He has done this by his own death, substituting himself in for us. It is a substitutionary death Christ died for the sins of his people to bear the penalty for it. And the book of Hebrews is greatly concerned with demonstrating that the penalty is indeed paid in full. That this is a one-time offering Christ has made in his own body. And it is sufficient to save to the uttermost all who believe in him. Again, this requires the incarnation. The eternal Son of God cannot die in his divinity. Again, God cannot die. It requires taking humanity to himself and dying in and through his human nature. And it is a mystery to be sure. There are places where we run into limits of our human understanding of how of God. And this is understandable. God is infinite. We are finite. We're not going to fit him all fully into our brain. Otherwise, we would be greater than him. It is a mystery to us, to be sure, how precisely the person of the Son can simultaneously, in and through his divine nature, be upholding the universe by the word of his power, while also be born as a helpless babe, needing help from his mother, in and through his human nature. How it is he can simultaneously be breathing his last breath on the cross in and through his human nature while simultaneously in and through his divine nature holding the very breath of those executing him in his hands. But this is what the Bible teaches to us. The person on the cross was the eternal son of God and it makes the value of his offering itself eternal, satisfying God's eternal wrath. But he was also true man, and thus he appropriately represented his brothers, rendering obedience on behalf of man as man, paying for the sin of man, undoing what it is that man has done. And there is no other way. There is no other way to undo this. There's no other way to accomplish all of this. And this is the wisdom of our God. Verse 18, just briefly, also makes reference to another aspect of his priestly role. It says, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Our great high priest understands through experience as man what it is to suffer and to be tempted and to suffer in temptation. And this enables him in his mediatorial office to help and to intercede on behalf of those for whom he died. Christ not only died in the flesh in his humanity, but also rose bodily from the dead. 
and ascended to the Father's right hand. And that's where he is now. That's where his body, his glorified body is now. And he serves as a high priest forever. It was not just in his earthly ministry. It is not just his death and the propitiation that he has secured that makes up his priestly work. I'm going to read a few verses from Hebrews 7, verse 23. It says, The former priests, now it's talking about the old covenant priests, the Old Testament. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But Christ holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we would have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests of the Old Testament, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, and then for those of the people. Since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law, Old Testament, appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. He continues forever and he continues to intercede forever for his brothers. And he can and he does do it perfectly. He is perfectly equipped for this task in every way. And this is to be the comfort for all who are trusting in him, that he is sufficient. Propitiation has been won by him. He is the perfect high priest even now, able to save to the uttermost all who draw near to God through him. The good news of Christmas, the good news of the gospel is that the Savior has come and there is peace and it's not just a vague kind of hopefulness that maybe things will work out it is a peace with god almighty there is remedy for sin there is salvation forgiveness there is saving from death and it is found only in and through the lord jesus christ who is true god and true man And God calls on all men and women everywhere who hear this good news to repent of your sins and to place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. To acknowledge your sinfulness, to look away from yourself. I'm going to figure this out on my own or be good enough or whatever it is we might do. And to say, I have no righteousness of my own. I need to place my hope in the Lord Jesus Christ that he has done all that is required for me. The work that Christ has performed in his earthly ministry and that he continues to perform in his ongoing work of intercession are on behalf of all those whom the Father has given to him. And they are those who respond in this repentance and faith. They are those who believe, who turn to God in faith. And if that's you, then you should have confidence that the power of death no longer holds sway over you. That though you die, yet shall you live. 
And there is coming the resurrection to life for all those who die in Christ Jesus. The eternal life is indeed yours. Likewise, for those in Christ, the accusations of the devil, they have no hold. They have no sway. The condemning power of God's laws, we hear that God's law demands of us perfection, holiness of thought, holiness of deed and action. When we read that even hating another is as murder in God's eyes because it is the root of the issue. That even lust after someone is adultery of the heart and that these things are punishable by God because his standard is holiness. And when we read those commands and we realize they leave us condemned because we have violated those commands and we all have. It is only in and through Christ Jesus that the law loses its condemning power because, again, Christ has died in our place to take the penalty for those violations of God's law. If you are trusting Christ, your sins have been propitiated. And there is now peace with God through faith in Christ. And these are blessings that God gives graciously, gives graciously to those who believe. We cannot add to it. We cannot save ourselves. We are in need of God to graciously save. And it is remarkable that the eternal son is not ashamed to call us brothers. That we are co-heirs with him of eternity. That he would come, we're told elsewhere, for the joy set before him. Endure the cross, despising its shame. But he came knowing that he was accomplishing this redemption. What grace from God. What kindness. And all of this is made possible by the incarnation and the subsequent ministry of the eternal Son of God made flesh. No incarnation. There'd be no overthrowing of death. There'd be no rescue from its enslaving grip. No relief from Satan's accusations. No propitiating of God's wrath against us. No faithful high priest to intercede and to do so compassionately for us. But the Christ has come. True God of true God, light of light eternal, has come in the flesh. Behold, he abhors not the virgin's womb. And so we have not just kind of a vague peace or a wishful thinking this time of year, but we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ eternal peace with holy God, reconciliation with the God whom we have sinned against, eternal life secured by the life and the blood of the eternal Son of God made man. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace and mercy to us. Father, we thank you that though we were dead in trespasses and sins, you looked in pity and sent your Son. And we thank you that he has come 
and that he's not ashamed to call us brothers, that he's not ashamed, Father, that you would adopt us as children of God, though we have sinned against you, that you would graciously save and pardon rebels. Father, what mercy we have. Father, I pray that many would yet in our day and in our city and in our nation would yet come to understand these things, would yet come to place faith in your Son. Father, that you would release many captives yet who do sit in the shadow of death. Father, I pray for courage to make this good news known. Father, we thank you that you have initiated all of this. We could never have done anything to offset our sin, to pay our debt, to earn righteousness. And so you have accomplished all this by sending your son. And so we just give you praise. We give you thanks. I pray that as we consider these things over coming days, that we would just rejoice in gratitude for your kindness and your salvation to us. And Father, I pray that this would stir up in us great longings to run the race that is set before us in holiness. So Father, we just commit ourselves to you and we give you praise and thanksgiving and we do all of this in and through the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's no other way in which we could come confidently or boldly before you, but we come in the name of your Son, trusting that you hear us and that you will do what is good and right. So we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.